Today is the second uh, Sunday of Advent, and the focus is peace. So most of these words uh, that we, um, hope, peace, joy, love, have been hijacked by our culture. And our culture uh, thinks of these words in ways that the Bible does not have in view at all. Like hope, our culture thinks of hope as wishful thinking. I hope uh, TCU stays in the CFP you know, championship thing, or I, I hope K-State wins the Big 12, which they did. But um, yeah, but the, the, Bible, the Bible's definition of hope is confident expectation. So when I hope in something, I believe it will happen. I'm not just hoping, wishing that it will happen. Same with peace. So our, our culture, and, and, and um, Pastor Sarah got at this a few weeks ago in one of her teachings, we think of peace as like just absence of war or absence of war or absence of sort of like strife or like if it's quiet in the house and I walk in and uh, maybe everyone's on their own screens in separate rooms and I think, oh, this is so peaceful. But that is not the Bible's view of peace. Uh, What the Bible has in mind when we talk about peace is wholeness, when all of the parts are joined together. And so you can think of it like a piece of fabric that's beautiful and strong because of how it's woven together. So when there's peace in society or peace in a home or in a neighborhood, it's when all the parts are actually woven together uh, to create strength, stability, and beauty. Or you might think of a, of a mosaic where all of the pieces come together to create something beautiful, where everything fits, no piece is left out. And that's uh, what the Hebrew uh, word shalom is, is peace, and that's what it's getting at. So the first Christmas, the angels declared peace on earth and goodwill to mankind. And we sang about it, It was in our reading. And yet almost 2,000 years later, there is not peace on earth, right? There is not peace on earth. So what up with that? What is up with that? I'm gonna read a a quote by a astronomer and cosmologist who happened to be an agnostic named Carl Sagan. And this quote comes from 1994. It's called the pale, it's, it's from his writing called The Pale Blue Dot, And uh, the following excerpt is taken from that book. It's inspired by this image that was taken um, at Sagan's suggestion by Voyager 1 on February 14th, Valentine's Day in 1990. So 32 years ago. As the spacecraft was departing our planetary neighborhood for the fringes of the solar system, it turned around for one last look at its home planet. So Voyager 1 was about 4 billion miles away and it captured this portrait of our world that we're on now. Caught in the center of scattered light rays, Earth appears as a tiny point of light. Can you all see that? So that's us. That's our planet. Our little piece of dust here in the universe. Here's the quote from Carl Sagan. Look again at that dot right under the O of thousands. That's here. That's home, that's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was and lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joys and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero, every coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, 
explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And it's on that pale blue dot that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. Think about that. 700 years before Jesus was born, so 2,700 years ago from this quote, the prophet Isaiah put pen to paper extensively about this one out of all those ones that we read about who was to be born as king of the Jews, the Messiah. And a Messiah is just a a biblical word that means anointed one, and the anointed one is the king. So Isaiah foretold the promised one, the king who was to come, and in Jesus, that promise was fulfilled. And that's our sermon series, Advent, foretold and fulfilled. So Isaiah says this, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Merry Christmas. Think about Jesus, the humblest of circumstances from in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. And Josh talked some about this last week. But a tender shoot. Uh, Herod was in, in control at the time and tried to and slaughtered all of the newborn uh, males that were Jesus' age. Like he was totally, if, if, if uh, the uh, gospel movement was ever gonna be stamped out, it would have been in that moment when Jesus was born and Herod was wreaking havoc. So here grows up the promised one fulfilled in Jesus already referenced this a little bit, but the, the angels, a great company of the heavenly host, they appear praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. They did not know fully what this child would go through. They didn't know the full story, but they declared rightfully so Glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Let's think about the expectations for this child uh, over whom is declared peace on earth. Uh, Declared to a Jewish people who had experienced great suffering over the hundreds and hundreds of years of their existence. And even up to this point continue and have suffered greatly, who are currently under the thumb of Roman rule, a brutal regime. Who, you know, they are the ones that kind of co-opted the, the crucifixion as a form of, of uh, torture and, and execution. So they are not experiencing peace, but yet they're yearning for peace. And here comes the angelic host proclaiming, now with this kid, peace on earth. I want to listen in. This is kind of interesting. I find this fascinating. This is, this is a gospel proclamation about Caesar Augustus uh, from the providence, uh, providence of Asia Minor uh, who reigned from 27 BC, so before Christ, all the way to 14 AD. So when this Christ child was born, this Caesar was reigning. And this is actually a gospel presentation or proclamation about Caesar. And so the word we get for gospel euangelion uh, is not a Hebrew word. It's, it's something we, that the, the New Testament writers took from Roman society and culture. So listen into this gospel proclamation of what is promised that this ruler, Caesar, would deliver on. 
says this, whereas the providence, before I read this, you gotta imagine that there's a messenger, an ambassador who shows up on horse, rolls out a scroll, you all are peasants on some fringe of Roman society, okay? Got that? Okay, no, now that you're in the mode. Whereas the providence which has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar, whom providence filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind, and who, being sent to us and to our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become visible, and whereas finally that the birthday of the God, Caesar Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of the gospel, the good news concerning him, Therefore, let all reckon a new era beginning from the date of his birth. So that's a typical gospel proclamation at the time for these earthly leaders who promised peace. There was no peace. They promised prosperity. There was no prosperity. If you step out of line, what happens? right? You're strung up on a cross. So lots of promises of peace, but these people knew there was no fulfillment of that promise of peace in a Caesar Augustus. So you can, you can maybe you're already putting it together when the New Testament writers and when Jesus talks about good news, gospel proclamation about himself, no wonder they started to think, okay, here's, an, here's a, a revolt uh, underneath our very noses. So Isaiah, another one of his writings, so we read a a verse in uh, Isaiah 53. um, Earlier in the book of Isaiah, and uh, this was part of our reading, um, Isaiah 9, verse 1, listen into this prophecy. And this is what the people who were waiting for Jesus to show up, they would have had this stirring in their mind. They They would have known these scriptures. This is what it says. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So they're under the thumb now, but God has promised they will be honored and there will be peace one day. The the oracle, the oracle is this one of the uh, prophetic um, paragraphs that God has given through Isaiah. Says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is all looking ahead, future. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoicing when dividing the plunder, when they've overthrown the oppressor. And now we get to have power and prosperity. Isaiah 9, 4, it goes on. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, Remember that? Remember that? Midian's defeat? I mean, the the Jewish people who were waiting for Jesus would have. That's why we read our Old Testament, so we understand what they understood. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. This is battle cry. This is revolt. This is victory over the oppressor. And this next verse we already read, for to us a child is born, 
To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and his peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And yet Carl Sagan, 2,000 years later, writes about war, distress, all the, the, the calamity and strife that continues to reign on the pale blue dot. Something is not adding up. The, the uh, Sagan quote continues, I'll jump back to that. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors and Caesars so that in glory and triumph, they could have the momentary, become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner, how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. It's a pretty apt description of the human experience. He goes on, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. He writes 2,000 years after Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There's nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate, visit, yes, settle, not yet, like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. Although Maddox will have you know that we plan to have a million people on Mars by 2060. So it's probably not wrong. Last bit of this quote. It's been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. And he, he gives this quote 32 years later. It's more of the same, right? Calamity, bloodshed, strife, warring. It doesn't seem like there's more peace on earth now because of the Christ child, does it? I mean, it... It certainly does not feel that way. There's another prophet, Jeremiah. Um, he makes some interesting statements about the religious leaders at the time of his life. He says, from the least to the greatest, they're all greedy for gain. Prophets, priests alike, they practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. They cry out, peace, peace. They say, when there is no peace. And isn't that kind of how we experience Christmas in our culture? I mean, literally, we put up fake trees to celebrate and, and make ourselves be 
joyous and festive. Maybe it's our way to get through the winter months, you know, get over seasonal affective disorder or something. Or, uh, I mean, Christmas, you know, it, it's not gone away, right? I mean, I remember when Starbucks came out with the, the red cup and everyone was freaking out, we're taking out Jesus. And, and, but our culture is full throttle celebration on, on Christmas. And uh, we will sing the Christmas carols. Even people that don't care about church at all, they know the carols. They bring the warm fuzzies, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But there is no peace. Uh, look at any sector of our society and we want to uh, pretend that there is peace, there's beauty, that things are working well. We can drive through any number of neighborhoods and the yards are pristine, the houses are nice. I don't see a lot of people out necessarily, but it looks so beautiful. And yet there are people on the streets that can't even afford a bed at night when it's 17 degrees, right? There is not shalom in our town in our society, on our globe. There is no peace. Uh, Amazing, I mean here locally, amazing developments in Aggieville, uh, downtown MHK, they're they're really cool. And we we should celebrate those, but yet there's a uh, tinge of disappointment because small businesses struggle and get kicked out and and, uh, marginalized peoples displaced. You know, there's tension there. There is not a weaving together of the fabric of society. We could think about food. I mean, there's amazing places to eat out, right? All around town. Even with inflation, we're still eating out and kind of getting frustrated when they can't hire enough help, you know. The shelves are still stocked. Sometimes we're out of things, so we're beginning to feel it. Uh, Even the middle class uh, feeling, hey, the shelf isn't stocked like I'm used to it, but it's still there. But meanwhile, there are people that suffer food insecurity and we waste 40% of our foods. I mean, any, any section of society, you know, we might think peace, peace, there is peace, but there is no peace. Even think about relationships. Just because it's quiet in the house does not mean there is relational connectivity and strength and beauty by the interconnectedness of those relationships. So they were looking to Jesus, this child, to bring about peace. And he didn't. Instead, on that first Christmas, uh, when those angels were shouting, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is actually what we got in that child. Back to Isaiah 53. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised. He was rejected by mankind. The man, the Prince of Peace, was actually a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This wonderful counselor, this exalted king, the Messiah, the anointed one, we held him in low esteem. It goes on, surely he took up our pain, All this pain described in that pale blue dot quote of all the years that had been experienced up until Christ was born, but that is experienced up until now and will be experienced. He took up our pain. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced 
for our transgressions. This prophecy coming long before crucifixion was even invented. Isaiah is writing down this description. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Just a a side note about this particular prophecy, Isaiah 53. Uh, I visited Israel in 2016. Great trip. Uh, But our tour guide mentioned that many Jews and scholars were convinced that Christians had changed Isaiah 53 to make Jesus fit, that they had kind of tinkered with the text so that it looked like a clear prophecy. So they, they had that accusation, many Jews and scholars, until 1946 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. They discovered a scroll of the entire book of Isaiah that predated the oldest known Hebrew manuscript by a thousand years. So that's kind of a little trivia for, but think about that. Uh, they found a scroll that predated what they currently had in scholarship by a thousand years. Saying this was written, no, this was written years and years and years before Jesus ever stepped foot. The passage goes on. Oh, actually, if we, this, this same passage, but a little before it in Isaiah 52, listen to this description of the Messiah, the anointed one, who now we're learning is actually a suffering servant. In Isaiah 52, it says, see, my servant will act wisely. And this is a theme throughout Isaiah, the the servant of God, the servant of God who is, is Christ. He will be raised, he will be lifted up and highly exalted. Okay, now we're talking. The highly exalted king of kings. But it goes on, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. So this Christ child who promises peace came, lived, grew up, and was highly exalted, but on a cross, right? This, that that uh, blew up their categories. They had no category for a Messiah who would suffer like this. In Ephesians, um, it says a description of what happened there on the cross about Jesus. He himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the two groups being the Gentiles, the Jews, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Without the cross... What does true peace from the exalted king look like? It looks like the destruction of his enemies, right? And all of humanity standing in opposition to God. That was, that's also the story of the Jews. That's the story of every human who's been ever born, you know? Um, that, the passage in Isaiah 53 talks about, we have all turned away and gone astray like sheep, 
And so for him to come as exalted king on that first Christmas would not have been good news for you and I or anyone else. So he came and he suffered and bore our punishment to bring us peace. So um, stick with me here. The cross comes before the crown. And the Jewish leaders, they did not see that coming. They did not understand that, that the cross had to come before the crown. The suffering servant had to arrive first before he could be exalted king. They had the idea of someone who would suffer and someone who would be king, but never did they have the idea that it was the same person. We have one Messiah, two Advents. See what I did there? One Messiah, two Advents. So the, the, the uh, prophecy about this promised one was foretold and it was fulfilled in Christ and yet it's still forthcoming. So Isaiah 9, what we read all there, that's not yet happened. Christ has not yet come back to, 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 to show himself as the highly exalted king. We're still in this period of time where there's, there's time to respond to the gospel, to come into right relationship with God through the Messiah. Jesus had to pay the great cost of his life to bring about true peace on earth because we all stood against him. So they expected a Messiah, and when he was announced with the promise of peace, they expected him to overthrow Rome and restore Israel to prominence. And even after he died and rose again, do you remember what, the, what some of his followers said to him before he ascended? They said, are you gonna do it now? Are you gonna like conquer Rome now? And he's like, uh, no, we got some work to do. And we're still in the middle of that work right now. They never anticipated a suffering Messiah who would die, rise again, ascend to heaven, and then one day return as exalted king at an undisclosed time. So this whole period of history that we're currently in, right now, since the ascension of Jesus, uh, was not anticipated by the Jews, was not clearly communicated in the scriptures. But when we look back on it, it makes perfect and complete sense. And so Jesus, in a conversation with uh, two of the disciples, two of his followers, after his resurrection, the road to Emmaus. Go read this story in Luke 24. It's a fascinating story where they don't see who, he, they don't recognize him. He might've had a hood over himself or he's, you know, he's resurrected, maybe there's scars. And they're trying to understand what happens. And he gives them the most amazing Bible study ever. And he looks, he points out to them, look here and here and here. I'm sure he pointed to Isaiah 53. The Messiah had to suffer and die. And all of that is fulfilled in Jesus. So we are in the period of history where the church, us, represents Jesus, the anointed one, the Messiah, who's both suffering servant and exalted king. We identify with him as suffering servant, but we are also co-heirs with him. So when he is exalted king, we are co-heirs of his inheritance, which is awesome. So as we follow him, and we do the good works that he has for us. That includes suffering. 
Maybe not to the extent that he did, but suffering nonetheless. And this suffering is not meaningless, but is how we also bring about peace on earth and goodwill toward mankind. Jesus leaves us here, the church, so that others may experience peace that he bought on the cross. So a couple thoughts for response and action. And uh, this is a... This is a lot uh, you know, to consider, to take in. So there's a lot of Bible study here you can do, which is a lot of fun as well. So the first thing is to, is to trust the scriptures. Trust the scriptures are true. Um, God's method of authenticating the scriptures, the Bible that you hold in your hand or are looking at on your iPhone or you know, iPad. Uh, the way that God authenticates this religious text over and against every other religious text out there is through fulfilled prophecy. So uh, study that. You can trust the scriptures. It, it, it's, there's, when your faith is, is, is uh, doubting or you're sad like the guys on the road to Emmaus, they are sad. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, ta-da, here I am because he's gonna go away physically, right? He teaches them how to look at the fulfillment of prophecy to strengthen their faith, which that will continue time and time again. Think about the early church. Jesus ascends and maybe they start thinking, I don't know, was it real? Is it real? They can go back to the scriptures over and over and over again and look at prophecy foretold and fulfilled. So that's number one. We can trust the scriptures that we hold in our hands. Second, follow the Messiah. Follow this Messiah to whom all of the scriptures point. And yes, Jesus on the first Christmas disappointed a lot of people. The version of peace that they wanted was different than what he was offering at the time. And that's a lot of our experience as well. We expect some disappointment from Jesus. Uh, what's the phrase that we came up with at our church? Appropriately disappointed. Um, that's a, when Jesus interacted with people, they're all excited and a lot of them left appropriately disappointed. He had bigger things in mind for them than just solving their immediate problem. Although sometimes he does that. So follow this Messiah to whom the scriptures point. And then finally, be a, oh yeah, we did that. I always have to skip a slide. It's just kind of part of what I do. <laughs> Sorry. Um, be a peacemaker. This is one of the, the uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. Be one of those who brings about peace. And this comes at a cost. This isn't just declaring peace, man. Yo, what's, you know, our culture has made it sort of like this goofy thing. But be a one who brings about peace. And that will cost you something. It comes through suffering, through sacrificial living, so when you give money, you know, to either a healthy church or a solid nonprofit or to your neighbor to help them, that is, that's a form of suffering to help bring about peace, that interweaving of that fabric of society. There's so many opportunities for us to be those who bring about peace. In Hebrews 12, uh, I, this is, I love this passage. I mean, I love all of it, you know? It's like, how can you have a favorite verse? How can you even highlight verses when it's all inspired, right? But this is great, uh, this description and encouragement to us to, to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles and run with perseverance this race that is marked out before us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. So he, the suffering was not short-sighted. He saw something far beyond that, the exal- being the exalted king and the good works and the family that he brought back to himself. So this isn't just suffering for suffering's sake. This is for the joy that comes ahead. So I'd like to invite the worship team up and just encourage you with the final next step. There we go. Encourage you, during Advent, yes, Christmas is joyous, it's festive, but it's, it's, it's actually sorrowful because we are looking ahead to the second Advent of our Messiah when he will come to make all things right. When that, that pale blue dot quote will look very differently after that time. And so we're in a season of joy and sorrow as we wait for the Advent of the Messiah to our pale blue dot. And uh, I had this experience this last Wednesday with our small group. Um, we meet on Wednesdays. We met here this time. And so we were, there was just eight of us gathered back at that table uh, where Hannah and the Chitwoods are. And we, we took the uh, Advent candle over and we had just shared some joys and celebrations, but a lot of sadness and sorrow, hard things happening around the table, but also in the lives of those around us, you know, uh, health concerns, uh, death, marriages on the rocks, just all sorts of, of stuff, right? That we're not experiencing peace. We just sat at that table and uh, turned off all the lights except for the one candle and actually listened to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the Enya version, which is pretty good. And that, that yearning for the Messiah to come, yes, it's partially fulfilled at Christmas, but that yearning remains for when Christ will come and truly bring, bring peace. So we're gonna sing a song called Oh Praise the Name. And I think it's the third verse or so that says, he shall return in robes of white, the blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. But in the meantime, let's work for peace on earth. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for our church family. Uh, thank you that we have exciting things going on as a church, that we, uh, we're excited about what you have ahead. Uh, even today, I pray that any who need to lament or just grieve where they're not experiencing peace or where they have friends or family or neighbors or, or maybe just the heaviness of the world uh, situations is, is weighing heavy and that they would just be okay to experience that grief but yet with eyes fixed on Jesus, the suffering servant. And, uh, we ask, uh, Lord, come Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, Father. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.